In last week's issue of Bloomberg Business Week magazine, there's an article about baseball fielding statistics. I've read a lot of articles about fielding statistics, and most of them are a lot of nonsense. But this one's different because this is the first time I've seen analysis of fielder positioning data gathered by cameras placed above the field. This, I think, is the beginning of real fielding stats. I'm Alex Reisner, and you're listening to Game of Chance, a show about baseball statistics, history, culture, and the role of luck in baseball. Back in episode 15, Why Baseball Has Statistics, I alluded to the fact that I don't think we can have a full set of meaningful fielding statistics without more data on fielder positioning and movement. And this week, I'd like to talk about the existing fielding stats, where I think they fall short, and what fielding stats might look like in a few years when we have fielder positioning data from overhead cameras. So let's start with the existing stats. Errors are kind of the foundation of the traditional fielding stats, but every year, visiting teams are charged with more errors per inning than home teams, and this is about the bias of the official scorers. The Wikipedia article on official scorers says that the bias was significantly reduced after 1980 when writers and members of the press were no longer allowed to be official scorers, but I ran the numbers myself and the bias doesn't seem to have changed much. Away teams still get charged with more errors than the home team almost every year. Anyway, even without scorer bias, there are fundamental problems with errors. The most obvious being that you can only get an error if you touch the ball. So a fast fielder who gets to a lot of balls has chances to make errors on plays that a slow fielder doesn't. Bill James's solution to this in 1976 was a stat called range factor, which is basically the number of balls fielded per inning. It's actually putouts plus assists per inning, but the idea is to quantify a player's range. Range factor is easy to calculate from data which is readily available going back to the 1800s, but it's very position specific and it doesn't really work for first basemen who get a lot of putouts on ground balls or pitchers and catchers who get an assist and a putout respectively for every strikeout. It's also somewhat skewed by the kinds of pitchers on the team. For example, Sid Fernandez, who pitched for the Mets in the late 80s and early 90s, was a fly ball and a strikeout pitcher, so those Mets infielders probably had slightly lower range factors than they should have. And similarly, any fielder who plays for a team with multiple strikeout pitchers is somewhat penalized when it comes to range factor. There are other stats you can get from box score data like defensive efficiency record, which is the percentage of batted balls that are converted into outs, and Pete Palmer's fielding runs and fielding wins, but these stats still don't provide much detail about the plays. They're somehow not quite satisfying. So in the late 80s, organizations like Stats Incorporated and Project Scoresheet started collecting detailed information on where batted balls were hit. Basically, they divided the field up into zones. Uh, there was a chart they gave out to data collectors who sat in the press box and decided which zone each ball was hit to. Each fielder was responsible for a few zones and would get credit for an opportunity every time a ball was hit to one of their zones. If they fielded the ball and converted it into an out, they would get credit for that. And stats like defensive average and zone rating were calculated just like batting average. It's the number of balls fielded divided by the number of opportunities. A while later, John Dewan started a company called Baseball Info Solutions, and he collected similar data but used computers to do it in a much more detailed way. Instead of sitting in the press boxes, the data collectors watched video and entered the exact location of each ball, how hard they thought it was hit, the trajectory, where it bounced, etc. This gave Dewan the data he needed to invent a new stat called plus-minus. 
that's not a great name, but what it tells you is probably pretty useful. Basically, it works like this. Let's say there's a medium speed ground ball hit right up the middle. Dewan knows from his data what percentage of shortstops field that ball successfully. Let's say it's 50%. If a fielder makes that play, he gets a plus one, and if he misses it, he gets a minus one. These numbers aren't accurate. This is just for the sake of explanation, but bear with me. Now let's say there's a medium speed ball hit directly at the shortstop. Dewan knows that that ball is fielded successfully not 50% of the time, but 99% of the time. So if the shortstop fields it cleanly, he might get like a plus .03 or something small like that. But if he misses it, he might get like negative 2. So again, these numbers aren't right, but the point is that you get busted for missing an easy play, and you get a lot of credit for making a hard play. And at the end of the season, you have a number which is either above zero, meaning you're better than average at your position, or it's below zero, which means you're below average. Dewan first published these numbers in a book called The Fielding Bible. A few years later, he came out with a volume two, and these books created a big stir because the stats made sense, and they had some surprising results. The best shortstop turned out to be Adam Everett, who a lot of people hadn't even heard of. Derek Jeter turned out to be one of the worst shortstops, which was surprising only to Yankee fans. Albert Pujols turned out to be an excellent fielder, and so did Jack Wilson and John McDonald. Michael Young and Nate McClough didn't look so good. A lot of gold glove selections started to look pretty shaky. People who believed in stats were really into this stuff, and people who weren't thought it was a bunch of crap. So now, here's my problems with it. First, I think the idea that you can make each player responsible for certain areas of the field is a little flawed. Players change position depending on the situation. What happens if the shortstop is playing to the right of second base because David Ortiz is batting? Defensive positioning can make certain parts of the field harder or easier to cover than they usually would be. Second, whether a fielder makes a clean play, to me, seems separate from whether he got to the ball. But these stats are based on a successful fielding of the ball, which combines the two things. What if a ball's hit right at the third baseman, but it takes a crazy bounce? Or what if it hits the base, or if a runner nearly interferes with it and blocks the fielder's view? I think defenders of these stats would say that that stuff happens rarely enough that it doesn't matter. But to me, it doesn't negate the fact that getting to the ball is a different skill than catching it and should be measured separately. What about an outfielder who makes a lot of spectacular diving catches that would be routine plays if he was just better at reading the ball as it came off the bat? Or if he took a better route to the ball? He's good at catching. He's good at diving. He probably looks like a great fielder, but you'd rather have someone who shows how easy those plays can be. And this is a perfect opportunity for stats because it's harder to spot a fielder taking a good route to the ball. It's easier to spot a spectacular dive but it's not really what you want. Also, not only do these stats conflate the separate skills of getting to the ball and catching it, they ignore throwing entirely, and there are a lot of aspects of throwing. It's not just how hard or accurately a player throws, it's how quickly they get rid of the ball, and maybe most importantly, whether they throw to the right base. So for example, last year I saw a Mets second baseman, Luis Castillo, with a runner on first and one out, field what should have been an inning-ending double-play ground ball. It was hit pretty hard, it was right at him, he fielded it quickly and cleanly, and then he decided to throw to first base. But he realized that he was supposed to throw to second, so he turned around, 
but it was too late to get the runner at second, and by then it was also too late to get the runner at first. If he had succeeded in throwing the runner out at first, by all existing defensive stats, he wouldn't have been penalized at all because he made an out. It doesn't matter that it was the wrong out or that the Mets should have been out of the inning, and the same goes for outfielders throwing to the wrong base or missing the cutoff man and allowing the base runner to advance. These mental errors can be just as costly as physical errors. There's a John Dewan quote that's reprinted frequently where he claims that the current defensive stats explain about 60% of fielding. But I don't see how they're even close to 60%. I'd say they're around 25% at best. It's not that the data is inaccurate or the stats aren't well designed. It's that we still don't have the data we really need and we're not looking at the things we need to be looking at. Right now, I do still believe that a coach can evaluate a player's defensive value better than the stats. And in the case of Luis Castillo, a third grader is probably sufficient. So anyway, this is where the Bloomberg article comes in. Last year, when I speculated about cameras mounted above the field to track player positions, little did I know it was already happening. A company called Sport Vision had already installed cameras at AT&T Park in San Francisco, and they've added them at four more parks this year and they hope to have them in all parks by next year. The data they collect should change everything about fielding stats, but it'll take a while to figure out how to handle it. It's a lot of information, and there's a lot you can do with it. For example, we can look at fielder positioning, which probably says more about the coaches than the fielders, but, I mean, coaching stats would be pretty cool, right? We can look at fielder reaction time and also correctness, so not only did the outfielder get a good jump on the ball, did he initially go in the right direction, or was he just like vibrating because he knew the ball was going to be somewhere in the outfield? Also, for infielders, did they know immediately that they were going to have to dive, and did they dive in the right direction at the right time? We can also look at foot speed, when fielders have to take more than a few steps, and then there's the separate skill of catching and holding on to the ball. If there's a play to be made, we also want to know about the quickness and sure-handedness of transferring and throwing the ball, arm strength, accuracy, and of course, throwing to the right base or hitting the cutoff man. Anyway, hopefully I've substantiated why I think existing stats only quantify around 25% of fielding. There's a lot to look forward to with this new data, which should start to be available next year. I don't know whether MLB is going to make it available for free or if it'll be affordable or even available at all, but my guess is that we'll start seeing some new stats pretty quickly. Uh, This episode is already too long, but I do want to talk about one more thing because it's timely and uh, it's not going to take too long. I have a lot of respect for writer Joe Posnanski. Manny Ramirez is retired now, and a lot of people are trying to sum up his career and decide whether he should be in the Hall of Fame. And amidst this, Posnanski wrote that even though he admits the term genius is overused, that Manny Ramirez was a hitting genius. He says that Albert Pujols is the best hitter in the game, but there's no mystery to that, that Pujols isn't a genius because he works harder than anyone else. He says Manny was a Hall of Fame caliber hitter, even though he seemed to not care. Now Joe admits that Ramirez must have worked hard, that he couldn't have been so good without working really hard, but... He hid that part of himself from the world. So, what, if you don't let people see you practicing, then you're a genius? I mean, I'm not saying I know what defines a genius, but I think any reasonable definition has to have more to do with who you are 
than with what you choose to hide. And anyway, to me, Manny is not that mysterious. He's just the Dennis Rodman of baseball. Now, even if you don't follow basketball, you probably know Dennis Rodman from his various publicity stunts. But Dennis Rodman was one of the best rebounders of all time, if not the best. Watching him rebound, you could see how easy it was for him. He, he moved in this crazy way. He knew exactly where the ball was going and how to get there before anyone else. But watching him play offense was almost comical. He didn't really want the ball. His shot was awkward. He was so good at defense because he didn't care about offense. So he spent his time practicing defense. And this is what Manny Ramirez did. Don't be fooled by him showing up late to spring training. During the regular season, he was one of the first players in the ballpark every day, and he spent his time swinging the bat because that's what he liked to do. He was defiant and stubborn enough that he decided to just play one part of the game, and he had enough natural talent that teams let him do it, at least until they got tired of it. So anyway, Manny Ramirez. Genius? I don't think so. Hall of Famer? Unfortunately, probably not, since he apparently tested positive for performance-enhancing drugs twice at a time when nobody in their right mind would still be taking them. He does, of course, have the credentials, but the steroids may kill his chances. Anyway, that's a discussion for another week. Thanks for listening to Game of Chance. I'm Alex Reisner. If you have any ideas for feeling stats or comments on this episode in general, post a comment on the website, gameofchance.alexreisner.com. Or give me a call, 323230233.